title of this message is Judgment and the Child of God. We're in the book of Romans in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, but I'm going to just talk briefly a little bit of review of Romans chapter 1 from last time. Last time we were together, we looked at the second half of Romans, which revealed primarily two things. The righteousness of God revealed in the gospel to and in those who believe its message about Jesus Christ and salvation through faith in him. Secondly, it reveals the wrath of God toward those who reject the truth and the true worship of God in exchange for the passing pleasures of sin. These people who rejected God's word that didn't glorify God, they had the witness of God in creation. It says so that they are without excuse. They have the witness of God in their conscience, but it says they suppressed the truth, rejected God's word, and grew more debased and wicked to the point that God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Did you know that the Holy Spirit is a restrainer? He restrains the believer from sin, but he even restrains, acts as a restrainer in the world with sinners to restrain them from going so far into sin. But a time comes, a point comes when a person says, I don't want to glorify God. I don't want your word in my life. I don't want any vestige of God in my life. A time comes when God says, if that's what you want, you really want me out of your life, then I'll let you go. And it says he gave them over to a reprobate, a debased mind to do those things that are not right. He gave them over to their own heart's lusts and the lust that once thrilled them and satisfied them no longer did. They had to go to greater depths of depravity looking for satisfaction. Do you know that's how sin is? It gives you pleasure for a season. But the thing that used to bring you pleasure isn't so exciting anymore. you got to go to a deeper depth of sin to get that thrill. They didn't want to be filled with God's truth or God's spirit. They didn't want to be filled with the spirit. Instead, it says they were filled with all unrighteousness. Hatred of God. Haters of authority. Did you know that all authority comes down from God's authority? Even the police? Even, even police that are not believers? They hated authority. They hated God's authority. Man's authority. They despise authority. Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so would it be at the time of his return. People would be eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and reaping and marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Luke 17, 26 and 27. Genesis tells us that God was grieved that he had made man in Noah's day. Why? Because it says that every thought of man was only evil continually. Every imagination in his mind, in his heart, was how can I fulfill my pleasure, my lust. And it says it grieved God at his heart. He repented. Not that he repented from a sin. He changed his mind. He says, I'm so grieved that man is so corrupt that I wish I hadn't made him. Look around, friends. Is there any doubt that we are living on the brink of Jesus' return? See the vileness. See the confusion that's being passed off as normal and healthy. Isaiah 59, 14 and 15 says, Truth is fallen in the street. You know, truth that people used to just generally agree on, even if they weren't Christians. It's fallen in the street. Things that were generally accepted now are rejected. It says, Truth faileth, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. He that turns from sin makes himself a prey. Today, if you live a life seeking to turn away from sin toward righteousness, 
You're at risk of being made a prey and becoming a target. We are seeing a moral landslide away from truth and righteousness, and we need to be prepared for persecution for our faith. Did you hear that? We need to be prepared for persecution for our faith. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 9, that the signs of his coming and the end of the world would be the rise of false Christ. Anyone saying, hey, I'm the answer. I'm the one you need. Look to me. I got this new teaching. It's a false Christ. It's a false Messiah. Anyone that doesn't point to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the answer for the world, as the Lamb of God, is a false Christ. And there are many. And they're rising. They're increasing. He said there would be false Christs. He said that there would be wars and rumors of wars. He said that there would be nation rising against nation. The Greek for that is ethnos. Against ethnos. That's one race, one culture against another. Do we see that today? Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and pestilences. That's pandemics, friend. Pestilences are great diseases and earthquakes in various places. Jesus said all these are the beginning of sorrows. They're pre-labor, they're birth pangs. Jesus uses an illustration of a woman who before she goes into labor, she has pre-labor, right? All you moms here know that, right? You call the doctor and said, oh, this is horrible, my contractions. The doctor said, how far apart are they? Oh, they're about 10 minutes, 12 minutes apart. Go back to bed, right? Call me later when they're closer, when they're five minutes apart, when they're more intense, then come in. Jesus said, all these things that you're seeing, the end is not yet. These are the beginning of sorrows. This is pre-labor. It's going to get worse. Then he says, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they shall deliver you up, who? Believers. To be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Scary. Frightening, isn't it? It says there's going to be a unity among the races, among the nations. In what? In their hatred for believers and also for the Jews. It doesn't matter to me what your eschatology is regarding the timing of Jesus' return, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. It doesn't really matter to me. We know Jesus said, I'm coming as a thief. We know he said, watch and be ready. And we know he said that persecution is coming. So if you believe that the church will be raptured and taken before tribulation starts, good. I respect that. But don't have this escapist mentality that you won't suffer persecution. It's already happening throughout the world. It's already happening in China and in Iran and many other countries. They're already living in tribulation. And in Canada, they're making it illegal for me to say what I'm saying today, to call sin, sin, to read from the scripture. The time is coming, friends. Persecution is at the door. The only way we will stand when persecution comes, listen, is by grace through our faith in our risen Savior. Human strength will fail you. Human wisdom will fail you. You need the supernatural grace of God that comes from walking by faith in obedience to his word and his spirit. The grace of God. It's not just something that saves you. It's not just the unmerited favor of God to those that don't deserve it. It's the power of God. To live this Christian life, it's the power of God to stand when everything around you is crumbling. The grace of God, it's free and it flows from God's presence. Hallelujah. Thank God we don't have to earn it. Thank God we just come by faith to that throne of grace and we receive help in our time of need. Do you think God is going to fail his church in the last hour? 
Do you think he's not going to come through and make you strong and make you able to stand against everything coming on this earth? He is able, and he will preserve his church. Hallelujah. Persecution will sift the wheat and the chaff in the church. Many will walk away from God and from the church because they were never rooted in Christ. Paul tells us in Thessalonians there will be a great apostasy. That means a great falling away. But Daniel says this. Here's the good news. Those that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. They're going to grow in strength in their God. And they're going to do mighty things because God's Spirit is working through them. The present trials and those coming on the earth will shake all things that can be shaken. Those building on the unshakable God will only grow stronger and do mighty things through him. Those building on earthly things or on themselves will crumble with their foundation. The book of Revelation warns us about an unleashing of wickedness in the earth before the day of the Lord. John describes a woman who rides on a scarlet beast. She seduces the inhabitants of the earth by the wine of her fornication, of her uncleanness. She is spiritual Babylon, both a political and religious power, wielding great influence over the world at the time of tribulation. She's called mystery, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Here's what's important for you to know about this demonic spiritual force called Babylon. She will try to seduce God's people into filthiness by her seduction. She is a spiritual force. You remember Balaam and Balak? Balak the king saw Israel coming into his land and he was afraid. He was afraid because he had heard that they had defeated other nations stronger than them. He knew that their God was with them and so he hired Balaam, a false prophet, to curse Israel, to try to weaken them. Remember that? The whole story of the talking donkey and Balaam going when he shouldn't have gone, his foot getting crushed, and he yells at the donkey. The donkey speaks back. This is not part of my message, but I want to share it. Remember Balaam, three times he went up to a different location to try to curse Israel. Or Balak said, maybe if you come to this location, set up an altar here, you'll have a better vantage point. You can see Israel down in their camp, and you can curse them, and you can weaken them, and maybe I can defeat them. None of that worked. Balaam couldn't curse them. He said, how can I curse whom God has blessed? But do you know how Satan worked through Balak and Balaam to get Israel to fail, to be weakened? Do you know what he did? He led them into sin. He led them into fornication. He said, invite the people of Israel to your dances, to your party. Seduce them with the young women. They did it, and it worked. And God judged his people. You see, when God's people walk with him in submission and obedience, there's a power. They're like a lion that can't be defeated. And Satan knows the only way I can get them to be defeated is to get them to disobey and to grieve God so God has no choice but to judge them, to punish them. This Babylon, it says her cup is the cup of fornication. It's spiritual uncleanness. It's sexual uncleanness. Is it in the airwaves today in the world? It's everywhere. It's on the internet. It's incredible. Here's what God says to his people regarding Babylon, Revelation 18.4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. God is lovingly pleading, saying, I love you, church. You're my bride. 
It's time to separate yourself from this spiritual uncleanness, from this spirit of fornication. Because if you don't, I'll have no choice but to judge you with her plagues. Come out of her, my people. Repent of your sin and seek my mercy in my son. I don't want to judge you with the world. But if you refuse to repent, I will judge you with her plagues. This is a chastening word from God. To some of you who are being seduced by the spirit of Babylon, the spirit of this world, some of you, I believe, are yielding to fornication, pornography, homosexual fantasy, drug abuse, and other sins that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of. I don't know. God knows. God knows. Young people, did you know that it is fornication to sleep with someone before you're married? Did you know that? That's the spirit of this world. That's the spirit of Babylon. God says, come out. He says, come out from among her. I don't want to judge you. 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32 says, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened. That means disciplined of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God loves his children. And Hebrews tells us that every child of God is chastened by the Father, disciplined by the Father. Why? Because he likes to punish people? No, because he has called you and I to be holy as he is holy. And not to live in this world and just say, oh, I can just get by. Everything's fine. If we would respond and repent when the Holy Spirit convicts us, we wouldn't enter into judgment with God. He would cleanse us and lead us in the path of victory. God wants victory for you, for me. He wants victory for us. He's provided for it in his son, in the cross. God is not harsh. He doesn't delight in judgment or punishment, but he delights in mercy. He will, however, show sternness to those who stubbornly refuse his correction. Mark it down. You won't get away with your sin forever. Neither will I if I choose to harbor sin. I want to encourage you that the first step to victory is confession. Confess your sin to God. Be honest. But not just, not alone, confession to God. But to a godly person so they can pray for you. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's very effective. You know, there's a time that comes when you're struggling with a secret sin and you keep confessing it to God. You want to be free. And the Holy Spirit says, you need to bring this to the light. You need to confess it to someone who is a spiritual person who will pray for you so you can be healed. But you know what stops us? Our pride. We don't want to seem weak. We don't want to seem like a failure. We don't want to be embarrassed. We, don't, we want people to think highly of us. If I humble myself, if I admit my fault, I admit my sin, I'm going to look like a loser. God says the way up is down. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will lift you up. He'll bring healing to you. He'll bring victory to you. What thrives in secret, in the dark? Sin. You bring it to the light, it will wither in the light of God's presence. It will wither. Find a godly woman. Find, if you're a woman, find a godly man. Confess your sin to them. You may think they're going to come down like a hammer. I'm telling you, if they're truly a godly person, they're going to receive you with mercy. They're going to support you. They're going to encourage you. They're going to pray for you. Listen, though, guys, I don't want to make light of it. The Holy Spirit, I believe, is speaking to us today. He's saying, get right with me. Bring that stuff out of the secret and into the light. 
Why? So you can walk in victory and power and joy in me. Let's turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable. Listen, I briefly went through some of the sins here that are laid out in Romans chapter 1. And Paul transitions in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And he says, this is what the person's reaction is that sees this. They look at all those bad things that the, that the rebel, the sinner is doing. They say, yeah, God, get them. They are so filthy and vile. Paul says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are that judges, for wherein you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you that judge, you do the same things. Paul here is talking to the moralist. He's talking to the person who says, I'm a good person. I'm an upstanding citizen. I agree with the right things and with the law of God, and I'm a law keeper. And Paul says, you are pointing at this, you know, the drunkard, the the homosexual, the the fornicator, the adulterer, the person using drugs. You look at them and you say, yeah, they're bad. God says, you're without excuse because you practice the same things. How could a person who's a good person, a good citizen, a good conservative be judged by God for judging others? How could they be committing the same sins? Jesus said, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you know you've committed adultery already. If you hate your brother in your heart, you're a murderer. I was with some friends on Friday night for my wife's birthday, and and the friend was telling me about his remodel project in his basement. He's doing it himself. It's a do-it-yourself project, and he was telling me what he was doing, and I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, well, can I give you a couple tips? He's like, sure. So I gave him a couple tips, nothing major, and I thought, you know, let the guy have fun, do it himself. It's great. And then later he went on to talk about he was he moved into this new neighborhood where he's remodeling his basement a year ago or so. And, and the homeowners association approached him and said, "Hey, will you be the president of the homeowners association? You know, and enforce the rules and all that good stuff." I'm like, "Boy, I would have run." He said, "Okay, sure, I'll do that." So he's telling me about his neighbor, how his neighbor is is building a shed. Well, the HOA rules say sheds are not allowed. Sheds like this aren't allowed. Sheds like that aren't allowed. Sheds attached aren't allowed. Detached aren't allowed. The sheds are not allowed. Well, his neighbor's like, you know what? This is crazy. This, these, these, these rules are like 30 years old. You know, I, I should be able to build a shed. He went to the city. The city said, okay, they give him a permit. And my friend's like, well, you can't give him a permit. It's against the HOA rules. And he's telling me about this struggle he's got with this guy. And he's like, you know, I'm a rule keeper. You know, I keep the rules. This neighbor of mine, I'm just so mad that he's starting to build the shed. And I thought, I'm just going to ask him a question. I said, so did you file a permit for your basement? And he looked at me. He's like, holy shit. And he was so convicted. He laughed. And he says, oh, I thought you are my friend. He's like, yeah, there's a little bit of hypocrisy there. You see that? That's what we do on many different levels. We, the moralist looks at the people around and say, they're worse than me. They're bad. But if we were really honest, we're committing similar sins. The Bible says the same sins. How hard it is for the moralist to see his sins and come to repentance. He clearly sees the sins of others, but is blind to his own sin. Can you believe what so-and-so did? The moralist is indignant, angry with the sins of others, but passes over his own similar sin. The moralist, listen, is constantly comparing himself to others, worse people than himself, so that he can justify himself, make himself feel better. But the true believer compares himself or herself to Christ. He's our only one we can compare ourselves to. And you know what happens when I compare myself to Christ? I'm very humbled. I'm very humbled. Remember when Nathan confronted David? He came to him with a story. He said there were two men, a rich man and a poor man. Rich man had tons of flocks. He had all these sheep. And poor man had one sheep, one lamb. And that lamb was like a daughter to him. He kept it in his house. He fed it from his table. He, he gave it his own milk. It drank out of his own cup. It was like a daughter to him. 
And one day the rich man had a guest come to his house. He's like, well, I need to have, you know, I need to make a meal for him. And it says the rich man was unwilling to take from his own flock. And so he took the poor man's sheep, that little sheep that was like a daughter to the poor man, and he killed it and he gave it to the guest. David heard this story and he says he flew into rage. He was indignant. How could this happen? That man will die and he's going to restore fourfold. What he took from that man, I don't know how you die first and then restore fourfold or restore anything. But he was furious. And Nathan pointed his finger into him and he said, you are the man. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He points his finger and he says, you are the one. And David, thank God, thank God he proved that he was not a moralist. He was a child of God. Backslidden, yes, but he was a child of God that responded to the conviction of the Lord. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord. He didn't blame someone else as Saul did when he was confronted with his sin. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's what we should do when the Holy Spirit convicts us. He's not there to grind us into the ground. He's there to lead us to the truth and cleanse us so we can go on in him. Verse 2, Romans 2, 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Psalm 96, 13. For he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. Verse 3. And do you think this, O man, who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? The deception of the moralist is that by his judging others and ignoring his own sins, that God will pass over him, right? God, well, look at all those people over there. They're so bad. Me? Oh, but they're so bad. It's like the little child that says, you say, Joey, why did you slap your sister? Well, she pinched me. She did something first. It's always pointing, right, to the other person. That's what the moralist does. But the believer of God says, oh, God, I've sinned. Take my sin away through your blood, the blood of your son, Jesus Verse 4, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I love that. The goodness of God, the patience, the long-suffering, the kindness of God leads you to repentance. The moralist mistakes God's restraint in judging his sin. In other words, he sins, and then he says, nothing's happened. I mean, I've been doing this for two, three, four years, and everything seems to be going on hunky-dory. He mistakes God's long-suffering, God's patience, as the fact that God is not going to judge him. And that is false. Listen, God will judge sin that is unrepentant of. It will be judged. God wants us to take it to where it's already been judged at the cross. Bring it to the light so you can be cleansed. Verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Do you know what happens every time the Holy Spirit convicts you or me and we harden our heart? Yeah, he has to, you know, I, I shouldn't say every time because I believe he goes after us. He goes after us and keeps speaking to us patiently. But you know what happens if we keep hardening our heart against the Spirit's conviction? We keep saying that's for someone else or I'm not ready, I love my sin, whatever it is. You are treasuring up wrath in heaven against you. Think about that. You're storing it up. The moralist heart is stone cold and stubborn regarding repentance. They don't realize they're stockpiling God's wrath against themselves. Friends, your coworker is not the standard. The people on Facebook, the people on the news, they're not the standard to compare yourself with. 
Be careful you are not blinded by your judgment and hard heart and found at the last to be a moralist and to be damned with the lost, with the people you thought were such worse sinners than you. I'm sure, I am sure, there will be many good people in hell. Many good people in hell. Many conservatives in hell. Listen, I love conservatives. But being a conservative doesn't save you. It doesn't put your name in the book of life. Right? Many people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. They were never clothed in the only righteousness that counts, which is Christ's righteousness. They will come to the wedding without a wedding garment and be cast into outer darkness. Thank God for the free gift of Jesus' righteousness given to those who receive it by faith. I don't have to earn the wedding garment. I received it by faith when I'd received Jesus as my Savior. Listen, the bride of Christ will not be found naked. She will be clothed in Christ's righteousness. Verse 6, Romans 2, 6, who will render to everyone according to his deeds. Listen, there's some soft-headed thinking in theology today that says God doesn't care about what you do. That is false. He will render to every one of us according to our deeds. Don't ever believe anyone who tells you that what you do doesn't matter. God is looking for the fruit of good works that come from faith in him. We're not saved by our works, but we're saved by a faith that works. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Verse 8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. These verses may seem to imply at first glance salvation by works. That's not what it's saying. We know that that's not true. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. What these verses show is that In the end, the fruit proves the faith. God is going to judge the fruit. The works will prove genuine faith. People can say all day, and it's in James, I have faith, I have faith. James said, show me your works, then I'll see your faith. That's the final point. That's the final proving thing is, what is the fruit? That's what God's going to judge. No true fruit can come except from our abiding in the vine. Hear this. He is the root and the branch that supports us and produces fruit in us. It's not about you getting yourself right, making yourself better, doing it in your own strength. It's about life that comes from your relationship with Christ when your faith is in him. And you're walking in the light. You're walking in repentance. He's going to produce fruit in you. Verse 8 shows that everyone is going to obey something. It says, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath from God. You're going to either obey righteousness or you're going to obey unrighteousness. You're either going to follow Christ, take up your cross and follow him by faith, or you're going to follow your flesh. There's only two paths. You're going to obey one or the other. The difference between the spirit-filled believer and the moralist, how they view themselves and others around them, there's a huge difference. Some mistakenly believe that we're never to judge others. You heard that? Don't judge anybody. Hey, man, you can't judge. Matthew 7, 1, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. People stop there and they say, Christians should never judge another person's life, their sin, their fruit. But let's read on. 
Jesus said, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank's in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's so much easier to see other people's sins and faults than our own. Jesus said, don't judge like the moralist. Don't judge like the hypocrite with the same sins in your life. Deal with yourself first. Deal with yourself thoroughly. Then come to the Savior. Let him search you. Let him cleanse you so that you can help your brother or sister. Because you've seen your own filthiness, your own failure, and you found mercy in this amazing Savior. You will be softened and deal mercifully and righteously with your brother. Jesus said, with the measure you use, how are you going to judge? The moralist is very harsh and very proud in his judgments of others. James says in 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. If we are in a position where we have to make a judgment, oh man, we should be so careful. So careful that our heart is first searched ourselves, and that we're full of mercy. Did you know that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that the saints will judge the world? That the least esteemed in the church, that will judge the angels, and the least esteemed in the church should be able to settle disputes in the church between brother and brother before anyone goes to law outside of the church or goes takes up a lawsuit? Just take the person who's the newest Christian, who's got the least amount of wisdom, and they are better suited to settle a disagreement than taking it to to law. It's an utter failure if you go to court. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, For what do I have to do with judging those who are outside the church? Don't you judge those that are inside the church? But my friend, I underline this, this is an area we must be so, so cautious, so careful. So many people have been hurt and pushed away from God by judgmental Christians. God never wants his children to be judgmental, but he wants us to make right judgments in his spirit so people can be restored to God. Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Leviticus 19, 15 says, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Doesn't say you shall not judge. He says, don't do unrighteousness in judgment. Don't respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. We must not judge by our fleshly wisdom, but clothed in his righteousness, humble at his feet. Man judges by the flesh. Jesus said, John 8, 15, you judge after the flesh. I judge no man. Jesus is saying, I don't judge after the flesh. Isaiah 11, it says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him, this is speaking of Jesus, of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Listen to this. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, nor reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Jesus says, I don't judge anybody after the flesh, just after common sense or hearing of my ears and seeing of my eyes. I judge after righteousness and the spirit of God. That's how we're to judge, with the spirit of God. His judgments are redemptive in the church. He's always looking to bring healing by his judgments, not death. James 5.19 says, Brethren, if any of you wanders from the truth, that means a person was in the truth, now they're wandering from the truth, call him a backslider. 
and someone turns him back, back to the truth. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Did you know that in the church we are to watch out for each other? We are to care for and love each other? And that if we see someone go astray, we just don't say, well, I can't judge, man. That's not my place. I'm not going to judge. No, God's word says do not judge. We are to go after them. There's a way to go after them. It says you'll save a soul from death and turn a sinner from what? The error of his way. You know how we get away from God? We follow our way. It's the error of his way. I know better than God. I know how to run my life. I don't need God's, God's help. But it says he shall cover a multitude of sins. Listen, that's the heart of God, to cover a multitude of sins. When we see a brother or sister wander from the truth, we should be broken. It should cause a godly sorrow in our heart to pray for God's spirit to intervene in their life. We should walk so humbly, knowing our own tendency to sin and to wander. We should seek God for his heart and his words that would help restore them to right standing in God. Note the goal is to turn them from the error of their way. The goal is not to shame the wandering person, not to show how strong and holy you are. It's to cover their sins. And the only true covering or deliverance, freedom from sin is in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's to lead them back into right standing with God through the cross. Right? Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass or sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Do you understand the spirit that we are to judge in? It's to humble ourselves, to be broken, not to be like, ah, yeah, I knew it all along. I knew they were, I knew they were off. I knew they were bad. I knew they had that, that sin in their life. No, that's the moralist. The heart of God breaks when a child of God wanders from the truth. Our heart should break. We should go to our knees with tears in our eyes and a broken heart, pleading for them before the throne of grace. I want to close in returning to the moralist here. He's always denying his sin, saying it's no big deal, just small, it's not a big deal. But the Spirit-led believer is different. They have this internal light of Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's not an outward thing that they're judging themselves by. It's the Spirit of the living God and the Word of God in them that's correcting them. And, and they say, you know what, I was convicted about this. And people that don't have that light say, what are you talking about? You're so sensitive. Why does it bother you? We have an internal light of the Holy Spirit. They welcome, we welcome the convictions of the Holy Spirit and are often repenting at the feet of Jesus. They don't point a finger. This is the Spirit-led believer. They don't point a finger of judgment when they see their brother or sister fall into sin. They grieve and pray and they love them and they look for their restoration. They don't ignore the sin but they go to the one who can deliver that person from their sins. I ask you today, examine yourself. Be honest with yourself. Are you an out-and-out sinner like Romans 1, rejecting God's love for your soul, choosing the scraps of sinful pleasures you know have always left you empty? Or are you a moralist, one who trusts that you're better than the majority, you're better than those people, and God won't judge you? Hell will be full of people who rejected God's Son, trusting in their own goodness. Are you a true believer that has gone back to some of the ways of the moralist? Listen, guys, we're living in a crazy time. We're living in a time where up is down and down is up. Black is white, white is black. Everything is upside down. Everything is super sensitive. 
There's stuff going on that's just crazy that you look at social media, you look at the news, it's like, oh my goodness, can you believe this? Right? I see it. I feel the same thing. Are we judging others instead of ourselves? I hear the Spirit saying, be reconciled to me through repentance and faith in my Son. Be reconciled to me. I want to wash you. I want to restore you. In 1 Kings 8, 37 and 38, it says, if there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, that's disease, blasting, mildew, locusts, or if there be a caterpillar, if, there, if the enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people Israel, listen to this phrase, when each one knows the plague of his own heart. When each one knows the plague, that means the corruption. The, it's actually a Hebrew word for leprosy. When you know before God, not pointing the finger at everyone else, but knowing the plague of your own heart. And you spread out your hands to this temple. Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and give to everyone according to all his ways. Friend, we need to see the plague of our own heart. Not that we dwell there, not that we live there, mourning over our sin, but being honest. And when the Holy Spirit's light reveals sin, we judge ourselves. We take the sin to the cross. We find forgiveness and restoration in Christ. And then we'll be able to help our brother or our sister who needs our assistance in the Holy Spirit. Not, not our judging them in the flesh with self-righteousness, but judging them in the Spirit with an eye to restore them to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word would hit its mark in every heart, in my heart, And in every person that's here, no matter where they're at, your word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you, God, that you do chasten your children, that you discipline us, that you correct us, that you reprove us, not because you are harsh, but because you love us and you want to bring us into life. I pray for salvation for the outright sinner who's rejected your truth. I pray for salvation for the moralist who thinks that they're good. I pray that they would be convicted that there's none righteous, no, not one. And I pray that believers in this place who maybe have begun to judge others in the flesh instead of in your spirit, that we would repent, God, and we would make righteous judgments in your spirit. Bring healing today, Lord. Bring restoration. I pray that there's, I know that there's some people in this place that when I spoke about confessing to a person your sin, that you knew that that was you. I pray that you'd give them the courage to find a godly person that they can confess their sin to, that you'd give that wise, godly person wisdom and love, and that your power would come and heal them of the sin that's been in the dark. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.